tonight. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, we're going to have a fun conversation led by the wonderful Megan Reedy. Thanks, Crispy. Thanks, everyone. I am super excited that I am able to teach again today. I taught um, over the series of all about the heart or on the heart or from the heart. And that was really enjoyable for me. And I'm so thankful that I get to be up here again. So all that being said, I will say similar to what Crispy said, book one and two have five chapters each. Book three has 12. So Crispy did give me <laughs> the toughest book. Um, but I'm super excited. And honestly, what I've done is just summarize the patterns that I see in all 12 chapters and really just kind of talk through what I feel the Lord is really teaching me through reading this book specifically, but even what I think C.S. Lewis is highlighting through all 12 chapters. So bear with me. It's a lot of content, but I am going to summarize. That being said, I'm also going to pray just for one second to kick us off and then we'll get started. All right, Holy Spirit, I just pray that, that you would rest on us. Yeah, just anything that we're thinking about, our chores for tomorrow, our work for tomorrow, things we have to get done tonight, that you would just rest on us and settle us and we could just hear, Father, what you have to say about Christian behavior and what it means for us to behave in such a way that um, brings glory to you but is also for our good. So, yeah, we love you. Amen. All right, so there's going to be two questions that I want to answer for y'all tonight when thinking about book three. The first one is, why does God care about our behavior? Like if Jesus came and died for our sin and that gets us into the heavenly gates, like why does he care about our behavior? And then the second question that I'm going to answer is why do we fight God in obeying his call to a certain kind of behavior? Like, why is it tough when we hear, I'm calling you into this, I'm asking you to sacrifice this, like, why do we fight that? Okay, so that first one, why does God care about our behavior? The slide itself, um, it actually says, book three, Christian behavior, and then underneath it, it says the human machine. So I don't know if y'all are reading along, but that's something for me that stuck out through all 12 chapters is this concept of the human machine. <clears throat> so in the first chapter, it says here in the three parts of morality on page 69, you'll have to bear with me too as I flip. All right, three parts of morality. This is the first thing that it says about the human machine. There is a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought about God. He replied, as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone was enjoying himself, and then trying to stop that joy. And I am afraid that this is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time. In reality, moral rules and direction are running for the human, are there to help the human machine run. C.S. Lewis has some old school language, so you'll have to bear with me. But in summary, what it's saying is the school always asks, what do you think about God? And the first thing he says is like, God is a buzzkill. 
He's like, he's the kind of God that just likes to suck the fun out of everything. He's always trying to put these rules down. He's trying to create moral boundaries. And he's basically just preventing Christians from being able to live the life they want to live. But what if that wasn't God's intent, which is the last part? What if those rules and those boundaries are meant to keep the human machine running as it was created to run? What if instead of God being this fun sucker, buzzkill, always trying to be a Debbie Downer, what if instead he's like, I have these rules and I have these boundaries, but I have them set up because I've made the human machine and so I know how it's best supposed to run. I know the boundaries in which it gets to experience life and life to the full because I made it. We see again in the chapter of the cardinal values. I'm just going to keep referencing this. Let's see. So this is on page 81. If anyone wants to take that note. Maybe I should have done the not handheld. Okay. So first one we see we have these, these boundaries. People think that maybe God is trying to prevent them from living a life that's good but actually they're intended to give life and life to the full. So that's the first chapter. Second chapter, cardinal virtues. It says, this point is not that God will refuse your admission to his eternal world. So it's talking about your behavior. If you don't follow this behavior, it's not that God is going to refuse you admission to his internal world. However, the point is to make that people have not got the least of the beginnings of those qualities inside them then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. That is, could make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness that God intends for us. So, his language, a little tough. I'm going to summarize all these. What he's saying is, if we do not abide by these rules and these moral boundaries, it's not that God's going to kick us out. It's not that he's going to refuse his eternal life with him. That's not the intent. Instead, what it is saying is that God wants you to have a deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness. And that's what he intends for you. And when you operate in the realm of his boundaries and his rules, that's actually when you get to experience the goodness of the life that he has for you. So once again, the human machine. I've made it. This is God. I've made it. I've created it. I know how it works. And because I love you, because I care about you, I do have these rules and these behaviors that I'd like you to adhere to only because I know what's best for you. And I want you to have that life. All right, we see it again. We're just going to keep going through how how C.S. Lewis is super clear throughout all 12 chapters about this human machine and what God has intended for us. The next one is morality and psychoanalysis. So in this one, it's on page 92, it says, and this leads to my second point. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain with God. If you keep a lot of these rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I don't think that's the best way to look at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the center part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than what it was before. 
In doing this turning, the central thing either turns into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself. Or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with fellow creatures. To be the kind of creature in heaven, that is to have joy, peace, knowledge, and power. So here we see again the human machine. There's this core part of who we are, and he's talking about being a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. And he's saying it's not about bargaining with God. If I do all these good things, you in return will do good things for me. It's actually about if you choose to turn the innermost parts of who you are towards the Lord and walk into what he's calling us into, into that kind of behavior, into that kind of morality, that that is where heavenly attributes are experienced and enjoyed. That you get to be in this sort of harmony with God and with others and with yourself. Once again, he's, he's saying, I'm not trying to shield you from fun. I'm not trying to take away all the fun you want in your life. I'm not trying to just put all these rules around you. I also don't need you to bargain with me. I don't need you to tell me um, how good you're doing so that I'll give you more. No, I just want you to live here on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to experience heavenly things here on earth. I want you to experience life and life to the full and life in abundance and a life that like means something here on earth. He's saying, I want what's best for you to have knowledge, power, peace, and joy. I think about uh, the concept of just to give a little analogy, I, I like analogies to kind of help me explain these in simple terms. And I think C.S. Lewis is very scholared, so it's been a little tough for me to read this book. But the way I think about it is there's a human. Human tries dog food. I don't know what human would do that. That'd be kind of silly. But they try this dog food. doesn't taste very good. And they're like, man, this, like, doesn't taste good. Like, dog food, Gross. And the person's like, well, yeah, that's because you're not created to eat that. Like, that's, that's for animals. <laughs> that's not created for you. You should be eating human food. You would probably be much more satisfied. Um, I'm probably a little bit more aggressive about it, but the reality is that the Lord is very gentle with us on this. He's saying, I'm calling you to a certain morality. I'm calling you to a certain behavior because I know that that's what will be good for your soul. He's like, yeah, if life is tough, if you're stepping out of the boundaries of what I've called you to, if you're not having the behavior that I'm asking that you adhere to, sometimes there are consequences, repercussions, there's pain. But he's like, that's because you need to taste and see that I am good, not the things of the world. All right, so the next few chapters I combined, this was Crispy's, like, he tried to talk about Frank, but he didn't really give a good, a good overview, so go ask him later what Frank is. But the next two chapters we're going to talk about are a combination of sexual morality and Christian marriage. Okay, so I combine these two because I think there's a direct correlation between them when thinking about the human machine and what we're created for. So, we'll go over to sexual morality 
on page 99, and it says this. There is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half of the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. Great, C.S. Lewis. So, what I want to mention here when it comes to sexual, sexual morality and Christian marriage is this. Our sexual desires are not bad. They are a good thing given from a good and holy God. They are not a part of the fall. But, similar to the food comment that he makes, when we make our sexual desires, or that form of intimacy, our main infatuation. See, it's not the, the fact that we need food. It's the fact that we're, like, looking at food all the time, talking about it all the time. We're totally infatuated with it. It's when it gets brought out of its original intent that it gets a little messy. I, uh, I also, I asked Jack if I could talk about this, so <laughs> we're going to talk about it. We want to be authentic because we love y'all. So, that being said, when I talk to people and I tell them, hey, like, Jack and I want to save physical intimacy for marriage, they are shocked. And the first thing they say is kind of going back to that, that boy in the first chapter that was like, man, God's a fun sucker. Why would you adhere to that? That sucks. God's, like, withholding from y'all. And, um, yeah, I think, that, I think that that's most of the world's perspective. I honestly even would say that, like, sometimes Christians, we just struggle with that. Like, man, God, why are you holding out on me? That doesn't seem very fair. But the reality is when I reply, and I, I really do mean this, um, Jack and I actually, we really believe that our God created us, and therefore he, he created the desires that we have. And so, therefore, going back to that human machine, he knows how they're best satisfied. And the reality is, is that the food itself and wanting the food, that's not bad. Your sexual desires and wanting to engage in that and have that kind of intimacy, not bad at all. However, just like everything else, there's a place for it. There's a place where God says, I've made that desire, and so I know where it's best satisfied. And it's actually in this really beautiful, sweet covenant and promise of a Christian marriage. And I think that's where the purity culture went wrong a little bit, is they, like, made sexual desires and the desire for intimacy this really bad or, like, hellish thing to talk about, when actually, like, those desires are good. They're just intended to be in this space where there's this covenant and this promise. And so if God made the human machine, he made all facets of it. All the ones that are awkward that we don't want to talk about. All the ones that are just, like, difficult because we want to do them, but he also knows how they're most satisfied, and he loves us. Like, he's not holding out on us. He's actually saying, I want you to have life and life to the full, and because I made you, because I know that you were never meant to eat dog food, you were meant to eat real food, I know that. I'm going to point you in this direction because that's where you'll experience life. All right, so we're going to wrap up with the last few chapters. And the last few chapters also touch on this concept of the human machine and how God made us. And it's uh, the chapter of hope and faith. 
So in the book of, or in the chapter of hope, C.S. Lewis talks about three kinds of men. He talks about a foolish man, a sensible man, and a Christian man. And he says this, a foolish man tries to satisfy the human machine by just chasing after everything under the sun. Money, women, power, men, authority, you name it. So the foolish man is like, I, I have a desire, I have a want, and so I'm going to engage in whatever it is that I want to engage in that can then meet my desire. A sensible man says, hey, trying to satisfy the human machine and just like hopping around from this thing to this thing to this thing doesn't work. So I'm just going to settle. I'm going to have, you know, one, one woman, one man, stable job, good career, nothing special, special, but it's all good. So that's the sensible man. But the Christian man says this. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that. So book three, all about Christian behavior, all about how we do have this set of rules, how we do have this, the reality of this moral code. We do have these boundaries. And yet, when we're not satisfied of the things in the world, we get to say as Christians, well, I guess I just wasn't meant for this world. I was actually built and created for another world. So we don't have to be the foolish man. We don't have to run around trying to satisfy ourselves with everything of the world, with the best job and the best technology and the best hair and the best bodies and the best friends. And we don't have to be the sensible man that's like, hmm, guess I'll just settle. We know that our human machine, that our soul's deepest desire is to be satisfied by Jesus in his kingdom. He mentions it again in, in the faith. There's two faith chapters, but it, um, it's really summed up in that last one. So we'll go to it. All right. So he says this, he says, for your behavior, it's not hoping that you get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. He's saying, I've, uh, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. There's this gleam of heaven that I've experienced here on this side of heaven, on earth, and it's, it's nudged me just enough that I want to do these actions because I see that I belong to this God that loves me, that cares about me, that's created me, that knows my human machine in and out. And because he loves me and he cares about me and he wants what's good for me, and he wants life and life to the full and vibrancy and color and beauty. He's not holding out on me or sucking the fun out of my life or restricting me or putting boundaries on me where, like, Christians are boring and they're lame. No, he loves me and he cares about me and he wants my life to have beauty and vibrancy and color. And because I've tasted a little bit of that heaven, 
I want to act in a way that abides by his behavior because I trust that if he's calling me into that behavior, it must be where life and life to the full is found. So, 12 chapters later, thank you, Crispy. Thank you all for listening. I come to this conclusion. In the beginning of this, I mentioned that I wanted to answer two questions. One, why does God care about our behavior? The second question, why do we fight God in obeying his call to a certain kind of behavior? We didn't really get to that second one, but it's because it's a very short answer, so I'll get there. But I wanted to share this picture. Um, I will probably share pictures actually pretty often because stories and pictures just like help illustrate for my mind what God is speaking. And it says, it's a coffin, and it says, may the death of my life and my dream be the birth of yours. So Crispy talked a lot last week about how we're called to die to ourselves. And I think the reality is, is that when we're pursuing this Christian behavior, when we're pursuing Christian morals, and we're trying to answer the question of why God cares about our behavior, it's, it's because of this. Because he's the God that says, when you pick up your cross and when you follow me, and when you decide to die to yourself and surrender to me, I actually promise life. And I promise life that brings joy and peace and steadfastness. I promise a life that is a life that's going to be full of vibrancy and color and beauty. And it's going to satisfy more than anything of this world. And that's why God cares about our behavior. Because he cares about us. And he wants what's best for us. And answering that second question, I think this answers it as well. It says, why do we fight God in obeying his call to a certain kind of behavior? I think there's like a challenge here tonight for myself and each of us to just be challenged of how, how we're trusting and surrendering to God. Like, do we actually trust that he wants what's best for us? That when he tells us, like, we can't engage in certain activity, you can only have, yeah, you can have a few drinks. Maybe for you, you can't have seven. Okay. When he restricts us, when he calls us into these boundaries, do we trust that it's because he loves us and that he's going to bring beauty from ashes and life from death and joy from sorrows and dancing from mourning? Uh, the band is going to finish up a song. I don't know if it's one or two, but it doesn't matter. Um, I also, I know that uh, you can start playing if you want to. Um, I know that that song wasn't, you know, the intent, the oh, how he loves us. But I, I think it was great because I think there's this reality that we sit here and sing, oh, how he loves us. And when we think about Christian behavior and why he cares about it and why he wants us to abide in it, it first starts with, oh, how he loves us and how he cares for us and how he wants what's best for us. And so he set up the boundaries of which we get to enjoy that life. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to kick it in there. Oh, Holy Spirit, I just thank you so much for your presence. I thank you so much that you, you're so in tune to how you've made us, Father God. The human machine, but each of us uniquely, and so you know exactly what we need. You know every desire that we have on our heart. You know every behavior that we struggle with, that we don't want to submit to or surrender. You know every way that we've 
we fought with you, God, when it comes to surrendering our lives. But Jesus, I just thank you that the only reason you call us to, to these behaviors and this moral compass is because you want us to have life and life to the full. That you want beauty and vibrancy and joy. So we love you and we praise you, Jesus, and it's in your name.